Hello, welcome to episode 35 of We Don't Talk About The Weather, political discussion that to the uninitiated may just sound like screaming and crying. I'm Adam, and I'm here with Hugh. Hello. And we're here this week to talk about the 90s. The no, in fact, we're specifically not here to talk about the 90s, we're here to talk about the noughties. Well, no, we're going to talk about the 90s. We'll, we'll about talk it. a bit about the 90s. Yeah, actually, yeah, we are going into the noughties now, shit, yeah. It's, it's <laughs> just, it's literally, I've got it written down, it's like 2000 to 2007. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, okay. This is the third noughties. part of our kind of little little arc yeah. on Major and Blair hmm. as Prime Ministers, what Britain was like, because all you millennials, you don't even remember. You don't even remember what it was like. To be honest, I don't remember much, because this is primo me being stoned and listening to nothing but metal. <laughs> Are you telling me you were, you were being getting stoned? Being stoned? <laughs> you were getting stoned and listening to metal while not reading the Financial Times? Yeah. <laughs> Newsweek, <laughs> The Economist. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> See that advert for The Economist where they're like, you need to know, you need to, uh, uh, you need all the information you can. You need the primo top information. And it's like, well, they're not going to get it from reading The Fucking Economist. No, you're not Did you know Indonesia that. is at a crossroads, etc.? <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that Saudi Arabia are going through a reform period? Oh, oh man, I was really, because we're doing these ARC things, we're not doing like week to week events mm. at the moment. Um, I really wanted to do Saudi Arabia. I've been reading like a history of Saudi Arabia oh, no. um, the past couple of months. It's so fucking good. It's so like deliciously politics, yes. except for all the people who are dying. Yeah. It's well, super I mean that's great. very political still, but you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's 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 gorgeous. Um, so yeah, we're on part three. We're into the latter era of Tony Blair. We're thinking about two thousand. Up until he resigns in 2007. Yeah, Tony Blair at his best. At his most Blair. Yeah, the first three years are kind of... He he, he has a, a certain skip in his step. He's got a certain enthusiasm. Things can only get better, etc, etc. The press are all pleased with him because he's young. He's got young kids. Yeah, you know, I mean, like, to be honest, the Tory... The, the Tory... People definitely overstate the amount, but the amount to which he was supported by... Um, like the Sun and the Mail and the mm. Telegraph. Telegraph always hated him. The Mail turned on him quite quickly, except whenever he was as authoritarian as he could get. Mm. And the Sun, well, the Sun's the Sun. Mm. It, it still kind of ragged on him as a as Labour leader, using specifically like Labour things to attack him with. Um, despite what Liberal commentators might think, Tony Blair didn't win elections just by these like smooth personality tricks, having the right-wing press on side, and or you know by offering a progressive platform. He, as we kind of talked about last episode, he he won by successfully balancing existing forces in the historical moment that he existed in, which is the '90s, huge economic growth, no real alternatives, no real uh, geopolitical rivals. All a happy, happy, good time for mm. the West, supposedly. He was able to kind of make policies that were palatable to swing voters, but he was able to just about kind of mitigate the trade-offs that would make him seem kind of liberal and progressive, so mm. he keeps the, the kind of liberal middle class on side. Um, there's such a difference between like the, even the caricatures, like the, you look at the political cartoons at the time, there's such a difference between like the, the kind of jug-eared, smooth-talking lawyer hmm. kind of caricature that he is before 2001, yeah. and then increasingly becomes this like blood-soaked, unrepentant, insane monster yeah. by 2000. By the time he, he's in 2007, like in 2000, opponents wished he would kind of either be more left-wing, be more liberal, hmm. um, or he would, that he would resign. And by 2007, people want him in jail or dead. Yeah. And that's a... That's a pretty significant swing. Yeah, like yeah. We, people don't generally wish John Major death. No, not really. You get the difference with um. Yeah, I do remember that the difference in the portrayal of him as being yeah, a kind of a liar, but he's trying to rip you off. Yeah. To he is gonna lie about all the people he's killed, and he needs to be stopped. It's it was more like the there's nothing off limits. Yeah. Like ninety day detention and extending things and by the way every person loitering on a street corner we are going to give the police powers to you know pry them away with sticks and mm. it's it got really weird he had a very um so yeah it, it under tony blair the definition of civil liberties um became a lot more a lot more pliable yeah uh, let's say 
Um, it had always been kind of a Labour thing that they would, at least on paper, kind of safeguard the rights of minorities. So, you know, mm. they're the kind of people who introduce, um, like, uh, legalised homosexuality and, mm. you know, um, that kind of thing, try and try and go for more tolerance. It's like, it's part of their position as yet, like, yeah, they're the Socialist Party, but they're also mostly just liberals. They're mm. just modern, the modern liberal party. Yeah. Um, Lord Adonis in 2016 um, had a lecture on, had I a whole Lord, lecture series. I love Lord Adonis. Just the man who could never, ever get elected. No. Because he's appalling. And who uh, defected to the Tories as soon as Tony Blair left. Um, the weird thing is, by 2016, he's not actually that complimentary about uh, Tony Blair. Um, just quoting from it here. Tony was essentially a social liberal with a strong imperialist streak. He was strongly... Oh, shit. Yeah. He was strongly in favour of the assertion of power abroad. He was more Thatcherite than Thatcher. He was positively Gladstonian. Those ideas became more apparent over time. Equally, the extent of his liberalism was disguised in the early years because he used Labour language. Mm. Tony wasn't wildly interested in policy. Policy tended to be franchised out to people he appointed. What he was good at was stopping things happening, such as any threat to private schools or grammar schools. Health and education were the big public services the middle class consumed, and they were electorally and socially vital to his, product, to his project. He was only really interested in public services that affected the middle class. He never wanted to reform the police. The Tories would have to do that. He was not interested in local government, except in London, because of the middle class. And his interest in London rapidly waned when it became clear that the mayor was going to be Ken Livingston. And he had no interest in repeating the changes in London elsewhere. Mm. So you've got like one bit of change with, obviously, September the 11th, mm. in 2001. He gets kind of drawn into those foreign policy things. There's all, all prime ministers like that as they go along. They, mm. they kind of divorce themselves from their small, tiny country well, that's when he started. and become that big, travelling... Yeah, when he started talking trip. about Israel. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, know when it's like, it's that point where he's like, I'm going to solve the Middle East. Oh, look, let's set it on fire. It's like, well, I've remade Britain. Clearly, all of this is a massive success. Yeah. And now I'm going to remake the rest of the world. I did Shaw Start here. <laughs> now I'll do Shaw Start for Baghdad. <laughs> Sharia Start. <laughs> um, so, um, I want to talk about a couple of things. We'll get on to like, liberal intervention, like his mm. international dimensions later, because that's obviously what he's mostly remembered for. Mm. But he got really authoritarian. Yeah. Um, by kind of 2000, 2001. He'd always had that uh, like triangulation desire to like outdo the Tories. Well, we talked about it last episode with James yeah. Bolger. Yeah. That that's when he starts doing his, going on his morality click. Yeah. Part of it is they imagine this kind of middle voter who's kind of cooped up in their homes and are scared of hoodies and, you know, yobs and knife crime and whatever. Hmm. Um, and he kind of tries to talk tougher than the Tories, hmm. but with the again with the trade off for his liberal supporters that he will he will introduce he will introduce schemes like that seems yeah. to be it. It's like we will really really punish them with hundreds and hundreds of schemes. Yeah, and it turns out that's pretty accurate. Hmm. Um, yeah, I remember being forced to learn how to write CVs a lot. <laughs> yeah, on. yeah, that kind of thing. So it's like we will punish you as hard as we can, but. You have this outlet if you do exactly what we tell you. Yeah. There are four lights. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in any sane system, you'd have kind of an ideology. He'd have an ideology to back it up that would be able to tell him when he went too far. Mm. So, like, introducing 90-day detention. What's, what's wrong with that on an ideological level? And it's like, well, people deserve to be free. There's a <laughs> lot of abuses of power. That kind of thing. Yeah. But, of course, he doesn't have an ideology. He has no. a position. Yeah. He has a place where he's coming from and an enemy that he's trying to outflank constantly. Mm. So, of course, like 28 days, 42 days, 90 days, yeah, fuck it, we'll just do all of that. Yeah. You can always justify it because you're protecting somebody, but mm. at the same time, you are you have nothing that ever says that you're wrong. Also, he's working on the imaginary idea that the Tories would have had it longer. Mm. Like, the imp constant implication, like, if I, if I, I want it at 90 days... But the Tories, they want it at 180, which, to be yeah. fair, is probably true. But also, yeah. shouldn't have it at all. <laughs> no. Uh, I mean, he's got, he's got, like, he's got uh, history, a record of it, because mm. it happened in Ireland. Mm. Uh, it was 28 days detention, I think, in Ireland. They never, they never extended it mm. to 90 days, but just, just reading about it, it's like mad. Mm. So you combine 
this war of position with the fact that he has a mythical kind of middle class person yeah. who he's trying to constantly woo. Remember, he's always in electoral mode. He's always in election mode. He's always trying to win people's votes mm. just because they had he had been in that mode all the time when he was a Labour MP. Yeah. Always trying to beat back the left. Always trying to appeal to the middle class. Always trying to drag them to the centre. Desperately wooing Worcester woman. Yeah, Worcester woman, like we talked about last week. He can't ever seem weak. Um, and he's faced with an opposition under Ian Duncan Smith and William Hague who've kind of gone off the deep end. They've got... Cause, uh, yeah. Do you remember like Hague's... Because um, I, I think he was Tory opposition longer than anyone else. Yeah, I don't remember much of Hague. Um, I do remember The Quiet Man. Mm. Because, you know, you should always he... fear a quiet man. And, you know, <laughs> once he became head of DWP... You can see why you should fear an incompetent, quiet man who just takes away everything. <laughs> they all got all cut from the same cloth, but Haig was like one of those young Tories. Like perpet- oh, he, was, he was literally a Tory boy, Tories. wasn't he? He, he was, was the, the Harry Enfield Tory boy. Yeah, but they tried that early. I don't think I think they made a little bit of a deal of, about it, but probably not as much of a deal as they do now. That he was from working class circumstances. Yeah, he's. I, I remember him saying about how um, on. Like on an average night, you can drink 10 pints of ale. <laughs> Fuck, yeah. That's what I remember. Yeah. The abiding image I've got is him um, when they were talking about the uh, Lisbon Treaty. Hmm. And he used to appear uh, when the Euro came out. And he would appear everywhere with a massive pound sign. And he had baseball caps on and he had his like oh, his God, sleeves rolled baseball, up. Like baseball a, cap. this horrible, weak, piss-weak piss imitation of... Tony, what he thought Tony Blair did. Yeah, it's it's that horrible thing. Like when Labour do the kind of triangulating, imitating the Tories, they kind of they're they're shitter at it now. But it used to really work in a ruthless way. It really did. Whereas the Tories, whenever they try, (laughs) we can see it like this week with everything that's been going on. They're so bad at everything. They tried it with Ian Duncan Smith because he's part Japanese. Is he part Japanese? He is. Yes, I believe. a grandmother or great grandmother, I believe. Yes. A great grandmother was raped by a great grandfather. I'm going to look that up because if I say that and then it's not true, that's really fucking. That sounds really fucking stupid. Uh, hold on. But that's <laughs> it's. I don't like. I'm trying desperately so not to. Th- so what did what would they have said? Like because he was a bit Japanese. Uh, jokes about nip in the air. I don't know. Like that that in the thick of it joke. Oh my god. Uh, hold on. Uh, yeah, I, I I don't want to actually have to fact check everything here, but um, yeah, one of Duncan Smith's maternal great grandmothers was Ellen O'Shea, 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 a Japanese woman living in Beijing who married Pamela's maternal grandfather, merchant seaman Captain Samuel Lewis Shaw. Yeah, yeah. So he's part Japanese. Okay. Um, and he's never had a job outside of the state. No. <laughs> That's the thing that I, I know about him, Douglas Smith. He was ah, in the he army. Did br- he did briefly because he was given a job by his father-in-law. Yeah, because like the house. Up. Yeah. Like, like his house, that his massive house that he lives in just up the road. Um, that his, his that he strove, he strived for that for he did. so long he did. with his wife. Yes. Constantly coming home. <laughs> Where is the money? I need the money now. <laughs> I was insistent on the point about the money. Douglas <laughs> Smith <laughs> just come back. And he was so... He's, that's the thing, yeah, because there was... Um, there was um, Ian Duncan Smith. It was William it, Hague, and no, then the other one. It was William Hague, then Ian Duncan Smith, then Michael Howard. Yeah, that was it. Um, who was like them? Tr- it was. I don't. Maybe I can't really draw any comparisons with Jeremy Corbyn being like an old, old member of the party because he was a fucking cabinet minister all the yeah. way through through Thatcher's tenure. Yeah, but I it was, was definitely kind of... like them harking back to like trying to get back to the root of their party. Wasn't he the MP for Folkestone as well? I believe so, yeah. Because he really does look like a vampire and Folkestone does look like the kind of place if you wanted to disappear a couple of people every so often because of your need to drink human blood I'd choose Folkestone. I mean, there was some very unkind things said about him. The fact that he's I think his parents were Romanian immigrants and... We know, so Dracula. Yeah. And they were Jewish as well, which the whole something of a night about him was oh, okay. something that one of his colleagues, I think was one of his colleagues, said about him. Okay. My insinuation um, that he's a vampire a slight... is based entirely on his on class. On your anti-Semitism. His... No. <laughs> <laughs> it's based on his, his class, his actions, and his 
tendency to wear capes and stalk the night. <laughs> Nothing to do with being Jewish. It's because he always had that. He's still got that little, tiny little bit of accent. Did he? Yeah, abs- absolutely. It, it, see if you can find a YouTube clip of him talking, and he's got a very slight roll at the end of his accent. Hmm. Very slight. You wouldn't tell because he looks like every other Tory MP. Like, yeah, exactly. Stale and grey, but... It, he definitely that kind of change it. That kind of slight accent is the kind of thing that Tories pick up on. Oh no, they absolutely do. He got he got he did get a load of shit hmm. for um, his what would you, his demeanor. Let's hmm. say yeah. <laughs> um, so you you've got a Tory party going off the deep end yeah. with uh, like a going as far right leaders. as they can, like a succession of failures, and it's like what we need to do is knuckle down harder and be more right wing, hmm. and then we can outflank Blair with Blair constantly trying to outflank them so they enter this kind of like arms race Mm. Um, everybody's trying to get tougher everybody's trying to put more police on the streets everybody's trying to care more about victims get more criminals prosecuted Mm. after a slow start um, uh, the prisons started to be one of those things so like 2005 Labour boasted of having built 16,000 more prison places than existed the Tories countered with a promise to build 20,000 more prison places (laughs) (laughs) we have 16,000 people locked up well we'll lock up 4,000 more (laughs) yeah so these scare stories like the media was already in full this is the year this is is like the time of like the paedophile riots Mm. and like I say the Jamie Bulger the the, the, um, Sarah Payne yeah thing so it's like well clearly things are getting worse something mm. must be done actually at a time when crime was falling because in good economic times crime tends to go down at least the, the smaller the the smaller crimes mm. but because they have kind of also got this symbiotic relationship with the media yeah they then have to respond to every one of these because Blair has set the standard now he talked about Jamie Bolger mm. and he talked about it in grand almost like religious terms so now they've got to respond in like a, they feel like they have to respond in a moral sense mm. to every kind of outrage. Except it was every white one. <laughs> Damalola Taylor was, oh, was perhaps, def- and Stephen Lawrence were perhaps the exceptions that proved the rule. And Stephen I, Lawrence, that was because it was genuine Nazis, and Damalola Taylor was an attractive little boy. Mm, yeah. Um, whereas, like, no, you get like um, kids going missing mm. in the same vein as um, Madeleine McCann, mm. who weren't anywhere near as white as her. Yeah. And therefore, just don't get... But I don't didn't have the David Bowie eyes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so each story has to have... Everybody's competing to have that Tony Blair, Jamie Bulger moment there, yeah. where they become the nation's conscience or the nation's preacher or whatever. He's getting increasingly more moralistic and, you know, they're using examples of horrible crimes in speeches mm. to kind of convince people how desperate the need for whatever particular policy it was. Mm. So it's like this devolving into this fucking horrible game of aristocrats. <laughs> yeah. Which and you, you see it now with things like um, the bullshit in America with the Bowling Green Massacre. Yeah. yeah and the constant need to yeah. one-up each other on their griefings. Yeah. Um, while not actually implementing the... Oh, not doing anything. Not actually getting to the better. root of the problem mm. or just your your response is always tailored to the people you're trying to... You're trying to win votes from yeah. as opposed well, to the people who are actually affected by the crime. It's because Jamie Bolger proved that it's he's so valuable. Mm. Those things are way more valuable to happen yeah. for a politician than to not happen. Mm. What are you going to do if there's no crime? <laughs> And you're Tony Blair. Well, <laughs> I'll tell you Tony Blair's, uh, a few of Tony Blair's policies hmm. when it came to law and order to see what he would try and do to make a world with no crime. Hmm. He had this speech where he was launching something called the Respect Agenda in 2006, towards the end of his, uh, his in tenure. Uh, in theory, in each case, the police charge, the prosecutor prosecutes, and the court decides. In theory, there is no need, therefore, to change these criminal law processes. Except, in practice, it's not what happens. In practice, the person who spits at the old lady is not prosecuted, because to do so takes many police hours, much resource, and if all of that is overcome, the outcome is a fine. The result is the police do not think it worth it, and so it doesn't happen. In practice, the months and months of a court process, with a jury utterly bemused and the legal aid bills rising, spending is very unevenly distributed between case types, with over 50% of legal aid for Crown Court cases spent on 1% of cases. 
The theory is basically treating Britain as if it were in the 19th or early 20th centuries. The practice, however, takes place in a post-war, modern, culturally and socially diverse, globalised society and economy. Fuck me, that is a... <laughs> getting in all of your great words that you love. <laughs> globalised society and economy at the beginning of the 21st century. The old civic and family bonds have been loosened. The scale, organisation and nature of modern crime makes the traditional processes simply too cumbersome, too remote from reality to be effective. So, like, he's... He's, but he is saying get tougher on crime, but also like look at the two examples. He chooses uh, somebody spitting an old woman, hmm. which is a case of antisocial behaviour, hmm. and then he's talking about what must be like globalised, like organised crime, and that these require the same tough measures which don't involve the court service or involve modifying the legal system. To be as fair, we know it. you spit all the time, and you're part of an organised oh, spitting no, I don't, syndicate. Oh, no, I don't do that anymore. Because I don't do that anymore. Uh, no, um, because Because I it's... keep on telling you you're disgusting. Well, no, because I know I'm disgusting. It was, yeah. how, it was how I was raised. But you were part of an organised spitting syndicate. I was, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, where's the money? Concrete <laughs> overcoat. I send someone a spittoon, and it's like it's an old <laughs> spittillion message. What if your enemies wakes up next to a spittoon? <laughs> <laughs> next to a camel's head. <laughs> um... So he, uh, since the self-reinforcing bonds of traditional community life do not exist in the same way, we need a radical new approach if we are to restore the liberty of the law-abiding citizen. So he draws a comparison. It's not the first time he's done it, but I think mm. it's a pretty good example. If he draws a comparison between there are only two types of people. There are law-abiding citizens who are the real people, mm. and there are criminals who by their criminality, almost, he's saying, inherent, that are not people. Mm. And therefore, you can do whatever you want to them. Yeah. So he has a number of um, different, uh, like, ways in which he, like, schemes he tries to introduce mm. to, um, to ready this, like, imbalance he sees in the court system. Uh, there's the IPP sentence, the Imprisonment for Public Protection sentences, introduced in 2003 by um, David Blunkett. They were designed to detain serious offenders, mostly sex offenders, who were perceived to be a risk to the public. Like a normal prisoner, criminals would be given a tariff, but could be kept in prison indefinitely as long as the parole board believed they posed a threat. <laughs> Indefinite sentences. By 2010, there were approximately 10,000 prisoners serving IPP sentences, over 10 times more than intended when they were originally first brought in. In 2012, the IPP sentence for new cases was abolished, although over 6,000 prison inmates remained in prison for public protection, and that, oh, that is still about 3,000 people in today, today are imprisoned still. under these things that have been declared um, uh, like uh, not compatible with human rights. Um, Three quarters of them have completed... But we have to leave the EU for us to be able to start stamping on, <laughs> stamping on human, human rights. That's what the man told me. That's what the Nazi told me on the, on the radio. <laughs> it turns out, in a, in a country like Britain with that, like, that long history of, of prisons and being a carceral state, like, hmm. think about it, the first industrialised country, the first like, really properly centralised hmm. modern industrial country with a crime system, a criminal justice system to match, hmm. a punishment system. Like, it's really easy to do that in this country yeah. whenever they, they think. Like, Americans are very, like, they've got a lot of rights that they know by heart because mm. there are certain things that are supposedly sacred to them. I know, obviously, there's huge exceptions. It's the horrible fucking prison camp. Mm. But at the same time, I feel like people kick up more of a fuss there. Whereas here, it's just like, oh, yeah, of course you want to, you know, keep people in prison indefinitely mm. for aggravated burglary. Yeah. Which uh, is one of the cases that I read, actually. There's a guy who's been... I think he was in prison for about 12 years before being released. You could do... Um, the, the let-out from one of these IPP sentences was you could do a course mm. that would train you to do something in the outside world, right? Okay. However, the courses were... There were only a certain number of places on the courses, and sometimes they wouldn't be in the prison you were in. Uh. So you had to get transferred to the prison. However, the transfer took a little time. By the time you get there, the course is filled up. And you can't switch to another course because you have to promise in front of these like uh, yearly parole boards what course you're going to take in order to get yourself better and for the next parole board. If you haven't done it, and they use that as evidence for you being a dirtbag. Yep, it's a, a load of it's a parole board made up of uh, prison officers and psychiatrists. 
Fantastic. But yeah, there were people like, there was a, a, a teenager, I can't remember his name, he was locked up for like nine years for um, ABH, for getting into a fight, basically. Yeah. Like, not good, yeah. needs to have something happen, but being locked up for 12 years for that? Mm. No. Um, yeah, three, by, in 2017, there were over 3,000 IPP people still in prison. Three quarters of them have completed their minimum term and hundreds had served five times the minimum sentence <laughs> that they were given. Jesus. So yeah, there, there are no rules when it comes to this. He, he, has no, he has no particular boundaries on himself because yeah. he doesn't believe in anything. He doesn't believe in anything other than looking as tough as possible. Yeah, there's nothing to stop him. There's absolutely, there's no twinge of morality. There's no twinge of like guilt or, or any kind of future mm. other than constantly putting people in prison. And the only people on the other side are Tories. Yeah, and the other yeah, and that's the worst thing. The people who should be opposing this are fucking Tories. Yeah, who agree with it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, the other kind of thing that he's like that I remember seemed to be every other week. Hmm. They had a big focus on antisocial behaviour. Yeah. Um, it was one of their favourite topics. Um. They set up a new department concerned solely with antisocial behaviour. They launched um, action plans, constant schemes, incentives, punishments, whatever you like for it. Mm. I think it also probably goes a little way to, I believe a few uh, weeks ago we talked about um, public space Mm. and how that's policed. Mm. And I can't help but draw a kind of comparison between it. You made the principle of, a lot of antisocial behaviour was things like loitering, mm. uh, lit- littering. Littering yeah. was another one. Um, minor, you know, minor property damage, things like that. Like stuff that bored kids get up to. Mm. And well, the thing is, as well with littering, I remember it's in my memory mm. of there not being any bins in London. Yeah, because there was because that's another department. Yeah, but the reason, and we didn't have bins because you know people might put a bomb in it, but. So, you know, what were you supposed to do? <laughs> I remember when they took all the bins out of the Pentagon Centre. Yeah. It's the end of my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> we saw, um, and the antisocial behaviour has made all public spaces in the Medway Towns really nice. I definitely didn't read a thing today about the Brook Car Park being a shooting gallery for heroin. <laughs> and how it's full oh, of blood yeah. and needles and yeah. shit. <laughs> God, like every now and again, uh, my mum worked in um, like the, the gum clinic, like not too far from, from there. Hmm. And... Um, yeah, she used to come home with stories saying, yeah, the police blocked the road off because there was another heroin addict jumped off the top of the, the car park, that Tesco car park. Hmm. It's horrific. Um, the government attached this like anti-social behaviour label to a group of offences um, for which the only common factor was they take place in public. Hmm. There was no specific boundaries. Like, they, like I say, they could range from very small things like... Were. Like making making things messy, yeah. whether by your leavings, your litterings, or your presence, mm. you know? Well, like, you, you could see them winning over some people with the notion of moving on teenagers who are being too noisy, mm. say. But a lot of the time it just, because teenagers were there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember being having policemen fret and asbos for hanging around on some beer. Yeah. Yeah, it's like yeah, because they and it was yeah. so vague that it was the old-fashioned thing talking about it earlier, where um, it used to be a thing up until I think it was the eighties um, of police having just blanket powers to move people along, hmm. and that kind of fell by the wayside as as you had more of a sense of like public space and how it was yeah. how it was structured. You know, streets were certain streets were kind of you didn't hang around on hmm. and. But generally, public spaces were places that you could you could be, you could mm-hmm. exist. Um, but th- the weird thing is that this antisocial behaviour label, as well as covering like littering, loitering, stuff like that, it extends to things like mugging, yeah, joyriding, yeah, you know, things like that. Um, uh, football hooliganism. Mm. It's this. It's it's this creation of a new category where it's all the same. Mm. It's all the same. Yeah? Also, that kind of. Um... That idea of just pushing it away, yeah. And what and what did that do with football hooliganism? It yeah. essentially created the EDL. Yeah, it was part of the whole thing of pushing them away from what where they used to hang out, I, but I, not actually dealing with the root cause. Yeah, I remember when I, when I lived in Lincoln, um, there was a, 
a link what were they called the Lincoln Steel crew something like that LS I think they were LSK mm. they were all banned from the ground obviously mm. the the people had their pictures had weren't allowed to be sold tickets all that kind of stuff and so they met at local building sites <laughs> they prearranged because mm. it was that was how it morphed it, it it like water it found kind of the lowest mm. the lowest point mm. you know um it's just a it's different from being an offender. Like a, a loiterer is not, not an offender. A loiterer isn't a joyrider. A yeah. loiterer isn't a mugger. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. As a poor teenager, I spent most of my time loitering. Yeah. I love a good loiter. Yeah. I really love a good loiter. Which and you still have it in your soul, hmm. that little bit of where you're loitering and you don't have anything to do. It's hmm. like, when is this going to end? I, am I being suspicious here? Do you know what I mean? It's something yeah. I picked up when I was a kid. Yeah. Well, it was like yeah, our teenage years and our early twenties when we were broke. Yeah, yeah. We'd spend most of our time hanging around street corners. It's why I, I still can't. Um, if I don't have anything to do, I can't just sit down somewhere. I have to keep walking. Mm. So I'll just walk to somewhere or walk around somewhere mm. because I can't stop. I can't ever stop. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the most famous measure he came up with to combat this this tide of yobbishness. Mm was the ASBO, as we mentioned, the Antisocial Behaviour Order. So the idea is to combine uh, banning orders, which are curfews and bans on visiting certain locales, shopping estates, mm. uh, shopping centres, estates, things like that, with parenting programmes that would tackle the roots of yobbish behaviour. Mm. They were issued by courts and they lasted about two years. They weren't very popular mm. with anybody who had to implement them. Mm. So originally, he actually came up with the idea in, I think, ninety six. And not many of them were actually used. Mm. Um, about 300 to 400 a year were being used until their second term. And then he came up with this respect agenda mm. thing, which was going to be his big like domestic public order legacy thing. Mm. So he's got this idea. He, he kind of conjures up this idea that there's hordes of hoodies out there hanging around, drinking on street corners, smoking, littering, and generally causing annoyance and that this is the root of why people feel insecure about like house burglary mm. or like joy like you sort of like we said joy riding or mugging mm. um the number soared from 427 in 2002 to 3479 in 2004 and reached a peak of 4122 new orders issued in 2005 mm. As they became more popular, so the conditions attached to them became ever more imaginative. In one case, teenage boys in Manchester were banned from wearing one glove because it was a symbol of gang membership. <laughs> uh, in others, teenage boys were banned from playing football in the street, and an 87-year-old man was giving an asbo, given an asbo after being abusive to his neighbours. In one extraordinary case, a woman was forbidden from making excessive noise during sex anywhere in England. <laughs> <laughs> so she had to go to Gretna Green. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> It's like such a, it's that problem with laws that are that vague. Yeah. Where if the law is basically what I don't like. <laughs> it was appealing to what they <laughs> believed was still the twi the curtain twitchy middle classes. Yeah. The ones who. Hyacinth bouquet. Yeah, the hyacinth bouquets. The ones who place a great deal of stock in their in their home like mm. to an excessive degree which is a, a, a it might be a european thing it's probably a an american thing definitely an australian thing like an, an anglo thing mm. but in england takes on that very specific character of banishing all kind of chaos from your sight banishing yeah. any kind of difference yeah home is your castle from where you shit. are yeah it never extends to quite the like the defend your home with your guns kind mm. of thing and it's a fairly i mean you know home ownership and, and defence of the traditional family and the traditional family home and all that is a pretty standard, like, bourgeois thing. Mm. Bourgeois facet. But it, in England, it's it's got that specific character of wherever I go mm. should have that uh, general general peace and yeah, harmony. Kids and, should be quiet. Yeah, yeah. Um, and kids are everyone younger than me. Yeah. Um he said in two, January 2006, the important thing about debating antisocial behaviour and the measures we are proposing is not to debate it at the crude level of tough or not tough, populist or not, but instead to regard it as a genuine intellectual debate about the nature of liberty in a modern developed society such as our own. The papers were very much 
in league with this crusade against antisocial behaviour. Yeah. Um, in 2003, the Mail published the results of a one-day survey of uh, antisocial behaviour and summed up, up uh, with the banner headline, 66,000 yob incidents in one day. <laughs> Around 1,000 of those incidents were prostitution. 2,500 were animal-related problems, in quote marks. 5,000 were... Dog. Oh, yeah, yeah, noisy, noisy dog. barking dog, yeah, or dog shit. Mm. 5,000 were abandoned cars, and 10,000 out of 66,000 cases that they reported were littering. <laughs> oh, exactly the same thing, that's exactly what you think of. Oh, yeah. You think of, uh, yeah, your behaviour. The Sun embarked on a name and shame campaign, publishing a series of four-page articles over a period of three weeks, encouraging <laughs> their readers to shop a yob. They printed posters of people made the, who were made the subject of an antisocial behaviour order, and the paper recommended that the readers keep an eye out for these odious yobs and know their enemy. <laughs> a significant number of the yobs before uh, being shopped had already appeared in the sun before the campaign. <laughs> it's like, you know, terror triplets. Yeah. Out of control, chaos family. Yeah, that kind of shit. Yeah. Um, Tony Blair set this thing up called the Respect Agenda, which was like his broad-based thing of which Asbos were a part. Um, they were... It was all kinds of like parenting classes. He wanted to set up a parenting academy. Like the one in Wales, the community... There was, a one, there was one in Wales yeah. that they did, yeah. Yeah. It, it, that kind of perfect new labour, two-pronged strategy of beat you hard, scheme you good. Yeah. You know? Yeah. There's a, there's the website is now offline, but there are some really really good bits. Um, the front page is still archived mm. because it's a, a it was a political website. Um, they have an FAQ in the in which the topics covered include high hedges, noisy children, <laughs> bullying, mental health, drugs, and CCTV. All the same, They're cut exactly from the same, same cloth, same exactly thing. Same. Exactly same. I remember when a bundle of loose hedge clippings forced me into a heroin habit. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, I remember when the yobs encased me in a prison of hedge. <laughs> it was so high I couldn't see the sun. <laughs> Yet again, yobs have encased me in a nest of my own making. Yes. <laughs> uh, there was a quote from the, um, the document that they released for it. The respect drive is not about returning to the days of knowing your place. Instead, the challenge is to create and, where needed, enforce a modern culture of respect, which the majority of people want. <laughs> That's perfect. That's, you don't, I don't think you get that much anymore. You don't get that like kind of language anymore. As, no. Like the... Because that's pure, like, new labour, isn't it? Don't worry, this isn't about the old... This ain't your granddad's criminal crackdown. No. Um, and, like, also all the language that they use in the report, it's talking to the middle-class people who... And wonks who read reports. Yeah. It's not talking to the people who they're either supposed to be punishing or protecting. Because that was always his shield. They were saying, actually, working class people suffer from antisocial behaviour more than any more than the middle class. So if anything, it's a socialist measure. And it's like, yeah. but they're never talking to no, them. They're, never. they're talking down at them. Yeah. It's oh, like a shit RE lesson. Yeah. It's horrible. Yeah. It's um it's all cloaked in that horrible, disgusting journo language. And then locking up single mothers in horrible community centres and teaching them how to change a nappy because yeah. otherwise their child will go insane. Yeah, for their own good. Yeah. This is all for their own good. And it's not like... like Informative work... lessons like, your child cannot live on Twixes. Yeah. It's like the working class in this country, like... Yeah, it's gone through a lot of... It's not, it's not the same composition or, or, or class that it has been in the past. But like, it's not like the folk memories of what the police means... Go away. Yeah. Those memories, like, you know where that kind of language leaves you. It's either coppers are going to be allowed to beat you up mm. and get away with it, or you're going to be fined into oblivion. Like, it's... People yeah. remember. Mm. That's the thing. There's a thing that the Tories have come out with today or yesterday mm. um, that just reeks of new labour. Mm. Um, finding parents if their kids are off school for being sick. Yes, yeah, it's that same perfect. You can bullshit. see the genealogy of that of that thing because that's another part of the respect agenda was like fighting truancy, mm. mainly by finding parents mm. who didn't know that their kids were out of school and exactly. were working 
who weren't there because who is at home during the day? Mm. That's why you send your kids to school. Yes. (laughs) It kind of goes along with um, the crackdown on the war on terror as well. So a lot of that language could be justified with... It was the same things that they were doing to terror suspects where they were dehumanising a particular portion of the population Mm. and then saying nothing is off limits to stop this problem. This is an existential problem. Mm. We are at war constantly. This is what we're going to do. Mm. You know, it leads us quite nicely onto our second half Mm. or whatever. Um, (laughs) His foreign policy. So that's the other huge, massive portion Mm. of Blair's... uh, Legacy in this like second half of his. So you've had enough of, of his telling you what to feed your kids. Yeah. But now, <laughs> you have. Now your kids are sixteen, and they're going to be sent to war. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good way of keeping them off the streets. Yeah. Um. So he had been a. He was still more hawkish um, early on in uh, his premiership. Yeah. He'd gone into Kosovo, he'd gone into Sierra Leone, mm. which were fairly low level. Like Kosovo was his big, like, mm. he could look like the best guy for going yeah. in there because there probably was a pretty horrific situation developing there. Mm. Um, and it went some way to stopping it by achieving particular... NATO-led geopolitical goals mm. involving the isolation of Russia and the the remaking of Eastern Europe after the fall of the USSR. I'm trying to balance here because I'm I I don't ever want to sound like a conspiracy theorist with regards <laughs> to foreign policy and foreign affairs and but. stuff like that. But it's really hard not to when you look into it. I think you've got to stay like you've got to stay grounded. Mm. You can't go all mad like fucking. Uh, Revolutionary Communist Party when they said their you know Srebrenica never happened it was a false flag. <laughs> <laughs> um, after nine eleven, obviously the capacity for this kind of thing went into overdrive. Yeah, invaded Afghanistan, led up to the invasion of Iraq. All of the stuff don't need to recount the actual details of it, but he ended up by two thousand and five in this horrible quagmire in two different countries where he was sending people to die and killing. Millions, based yeah. on very little actual, 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 even ideological reason. Well, because again, like because he, he didn't have any ideology. Well, no, he had. The thing is, he had. Point, he, was... he had this thing called the Blair Doctrine, mm. which is disgusting. I hate it when they, when like, like I don't know. It's somehow it's better as a historical thing. I think mm. it should be something that named after the fact rather than like two weeks after the fact. Yeah, it should be something mentioned in history books. But he laid out these guidelines for when a country should intervene in another country. So it was all Only very guarded. Someone else had written that as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Only there was like international rules. Mm. That's kind of shit. <laughs> On the legality of regime change in yeah. another country. <laughs> if only a lot of people hadn't been hung for waging <laughs> aggressive war, then we could really kind of decide where the limits lay. <laughs> but of course, after Iraq, he has no, he has no limits. No. Um, there's nothing you cannot do in order to achieve the goals that you want, which uh, I don't know whether... I think maybe he does. He did genuinely believe that regime change was an absolute necessity. But you watch videos of him giving speeches at the time, you watch him doing interviews, and he has the look of a man who is enthusiastically being swept on, along with what he regards as the um, the flow of history. Mm. So he's getting into his like his grand phase. Mm. You know, well, no, I think he was. A, I think at his core, he is a big, <laughs> and it was really easy for him to be swept up on a bunch of lies and misinformation from America. To join in on something really horrible. I think he'd far rather believe the lies. Yeah, than I think he was not, always ready to. Than not believe the lies. Yeah. Because any anything that would stop this thing mm. would be the worst. Mm. He had, you know, reformed Britain. He had beaten the Tories, which was his big thing. But he wanted to be remembered for, for more than that. I think that's definitely a, a thing, like the mm. legacy. Just looking at Iraq and... You yeah. don't have the Brit Awards. Wouldn't you like the Brit Awards? Yeah. Um... It fits in with his kind of overall attitude to power as well. Because as you can see in Britain, Mm. he regards the middle class as it exists 
since the as it has existed since the 80s mm. that's the apex of human existence remember mm. in the beginning of the the, the last episode when mm. we talked about the end of history there is no end of history mm. there's just a continual modernization and a yeah. continual not even improvement because that doesn't actually come into it it it, it never came into it with with him really he talks mm. about modernization and, and things like that but he doesn't talk about actually improving it or an end goal or an end no. state where you think that you'll be able to leave it no you know so he thinks that the kind of the bourgeois experience in the west not only he's graduated from thinking that it's an unavoidable obstacle which it is in 94 to the apex of human existence hmm. in by 97 2000 that kind of thing he thinks it it, it you know fits human nature hmm. you know it's the it's it's always achieves the best outcomes it overcomes any old problems, any history, any any tradition, any bad tradition you want to name, hmm. he thinks that that's what overcomes it. And of course, like that's aside from the uh, Saddam Hussein is a dictator stuff, which yeah he was, but there hmm. are also tons of them, hmm. and that's like an important part of his of the hypocrisy of his like liberal like that liberal interventionism hmm. is that there's a ton of military dictatorships around the country around the world, hmm. and the ones he chooses just so happen to be the geopolitical enemies of the United States. Mm. That's what people mean by like modern imperialism. Yeah. It's specific selection, it's specific focus. And the worst thing about it is now you've got uh, you haven't just got states dealing with states. You've got the entire apparatus of a country mm. dealing with what it considers, what it's mainly what its intelligence agencies consider to be a problem. So every time there's a something happens in a country, and somebody, the first person suggests that uh, the military should intervene, you've got every fucking columnist, every mm. intellectual falling over themselves to find reasons why we should intervene and why this is either the exception to the rule, or this is the pattern that we should follow, mm. or this is the only right thing to do. Mm. You know, it's. He kind of led towards setting that structure up whereby we're now trapped in this horrible hell mm. where if you don't intervene in somewhere like Syria, it becomes this horrible cancer at the middle yeah. of like domestic politics. If, for... you don't, if you don't support going to war in Syria, then every single person who dies in Syria is exact, entirely your fault. Yeah. It's a, it kind of makes me think of it's a problem with... It's a problem with Blair as a whole and what Lord Adonis said I think was probably right. Mm. he's a liberal all the questions about the Labour Party is a classic political like uh, like A-level politics question mm. of like well, is, is Labour a socialist party or a liberal party and I think Tony Blair is a fully old fashioned 19th century liberal mm. as, as he says so he's got a one size fits all idea about um, morality and about experience and about class and he's chosen his side and it is the side of the of the bourgeois and the yeah. side of imperialism yeah you know? no bullshit. yeah and he can't the worst thing about blair as opposed to even cameron mm. is he can't separate his own rhetoric from actual results mm. like you know the kind of everybody's desperate for him to kind of apologize at the mm. very least at the, the show the tiniest bit of contrition for anything he has done but he can't because his rhetoric to him, by definitely by this point and up till now, is as real to him mm. as the actual effects of his policies. Yeah, he doesn't. I, is it a stretch to think that nobody innocent died? Is it a stretch to think that he thinks that? Sorry. Yeah. No. That's what yeah, I meant. yeah. Is it a stretch like to think he's so fucking devoid from reality that he thinks that his actions didn't kill a hundred thousand people at least? Mm. Well, he thinks he saved more. I don't. I mean, this doesn't happen in this. Do, this this doesn't happen with most other um, European countries as well. Mm. They don't have that arsenal mm. to use. Yeah, the rest of the big, the ones that used to be big old war powerhouses really aren't. Like, I mean, obviously, into, they're not still into it to the same extent, especially at this point, because like our army is getting smaller now. Yeah, but, but it's always aligned with the US, and I think like the te I, I just you see someone like Blair, and you see his all of those things, the the triangulation, yeah. the way he approaches to, like politics, the way the things he thinks about the world, 
combined with a military arsenal, mm. including the US yeah. here, because it's just all kind of combined, with a military arsenal where you believe you can literally do anything. Yeah. Like, it's the most fucking dangerous thing. Yeah. And it has proved to be the most dangerous thing. And in many ways, like, it was very, very good that the US and UK were beaten in Iraq. And they were beaten in Iraq. Mm. They left with their tails between their legs, and they left fucking chaos behind them. Mm. But at least it left the kind of later generations with this sense that actually you can't just if, solve everything with military power. If they'd won, we wouldn't be talking about North Korea now because we would have gone into North Korea. Mm. Because there, people, like I saw it on the news today with the, um, like, oh, look at the way Trump talks about North Korea. Clinton did the same. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Seems Every American just, president yeah. uh, talks the same. And, and the luck... It's one of those kind of very guarded opinions that I have that actually if Trump doesn't invade somewhere, we might have gotten out of this period of time fairly lucky because mm. it's a fucking, it's a dangerous yeah, it's time cool. with Western societies kind of on the decline. The American empire is going into a very, very sharp decline mm. and you've got the rise of all these other regional, regional kind of powers and you don't look at declining imperial powers and what they do and they don't react very well to their decline they never react well to their decline no so like if you can get through this four-year period <laughs> with trump bit the worst him doing is making repeated gaffes <laughs> i will take that mm. because the alternative is horrible yeah horrible to behold yeah he kind of goes alongside his his He's increasingly... I mean, he, did he invade anywhere else after Iraq? Did he... It's Iraq and Afghanistan and that was it. Because Libya then wasn't until no, 2011, was which was Cameron. Yeah. And then you get to see the... Um, that was when... You get to see some nice old European stuff coming in there, like France. Good God, we're not going to go into Iraq and Afghanistan. That's yeah. disgusting. Ooh, former colony, you say. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and then the French jumped to it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that wasn't... But um, the only reason we went into Libya was probably because David Cameron wanted his sweet Iraq moment. <laughs> because well, no. they still think they still think like that. A lot of the um, um, of, there's, there's still a bunch of politicians in Westminster who genuinely think that the Iraq, Iraq war was a good thing. Yeah, but I think that they've that anybody in charge has been tempered by the experience of Iraq in mm. that they're not going to put boots on the ground at least not in the near future because that's the also technology has moved on now so we don't need to put boots on the ground we can just I mean well no that, that's the thing that you can't mm. I mean if you're looking mm. at like military occupations and mm. things like that if you're looking at an actual regime change you do need boots on the ground bombing mm. won't do it which it, it didn't mm. in in Libya you funneled weapons to people who were actually in there but you never actually committed your troops mm. so it's like a they are being a bit more cautious mm. And that's pr almost again almost certainly a good thing, but then, but then Libya's they are worse than Libya's worse than how they how it was. I, you can't com you can't compare the the outcomes from the two exactly because they have different f pressure applied upon mm. them and they have different like domestic situations. But the idea that Tony Blair has still not even apologized <laughs> doesn't even come close mm. comes comes back out every now and again. To, say, to, to say to say those 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 same things and still push the same bullshit that he was pushing in two thousand. Yeah, well, in that same tone. Yeah, he doesn't. He uses. Um, he does use slightly different language. He doesn't go the. It's not about this. Well, actually, no. Fucking, he actually did with the Brexit thing. Mm. It's not about this or this. Mm. It's about doing the right thing. And he yeah. made that speech like four hundred times. Yeah. When I was looking up through speech, like old speeches oh, of his yeah. for choice, choice tidbits. Mm. And he will not give up his particular like historical moment. He will he will always be defined by what he did in two thousand three, two thousand four. Mm. And I think I've, I've kind of I just wanted to talk quickly about Iraq because like there's there's so much so mm. much on it. But I think like we shouldn't forget that it also came at a domestic. He changed domestically at the same time. Mm. He was very very willing to use force domestically mm. to like achieve the goals that he that he wanted you know he keeps coming back and gets um the weird thing is that the blairist like blairite nostalgia now 
yeah. before him. The yeah. desire and the... Well, his chosen scion and like David Miliband and all Yeah, that like they're, they're, they're waiting for the... I mean, we make a lot of joke about centrists, but I don't think they that centrists would like him if he was in power. Now, something to do about that is to do with the dynamics of centrism itself, in that mm. no one is perfect enough for them because they are, by definition, technocratic and mm. they they don't actually want a government. Mm. They want a kind of a, a ruling elite yeah. of which they're part. I think, but. There's a lot of myths about him, like he had this progressive agenda, and it's like, is a, is a minimum wage worth 300,000 people dead in Iraq? Like, those are the kind of questions mm. you have to ask about Tony Blair after you mm. you come away from him. Yeah. You know? I don't know that it is. Was a couple of years of short start worth all those dead bodies? Yeah. Oh, but I mean, even if you don't count Iraq, like, it was sure start worth opening... The like Pandora's box of what people can, what Western Western states can now do to civil liberties because mm. they don't exist. Mm. Like let's, you can you can say about how important they are and how about privacy is threatened and all that, mm. but they had been gradually being decreased among all the kind of. I mean, whenever they want to get rid of it, get rid of another one, they'll just say we're doing it. Yeah, it's it. There's no. I think that's an important thing about him. He he breached, he breached that line that even like. Tories who wanted to be respectable wouldn't breach because now mm. everyone wants to be revolutionary like mm. him. Mm. So he will. There, there are no. There are no limits. He had a. He it was weird. He, he, he was always accused of being presidential, and he was like, yeah, he was like imperial. He was mm. an imperial in every sense of the word. In that he actually, I think he changed. Maybe not quite as much as Thatcher, but definitely had more long-lasting effects. In that there's nothing off the table now. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. He made it... Yeah, he made it okay to attack pretty much everything. Mm. Yeah. As long as it's being modernised, it's okay. Mm. He's at his worst. He is both Mark and Jez from Peep Show. Yeah. <laughs> he is We've had long his, discussions about this. Like, at his yeah. core, he is this authoritarian, awkward, angry man who is annoyed at any kind of noise around him yeah. but also he has this deep-seated belief that he can achieve something he doesn't know what it is but mm. he'll do anything to achieve it wait that no, he's a plays uh oh no does jazz play guitar in Peep Show? no he, he doesn't plays he keyboard. plays keyboard <laughs> which is the weak guitar <laughs> does he have a guitar at some point the coward's <laughs> guitar that's what i meant to say but um yeah there's like that kind of jazz never does anything in Peep Show. Mm. But whenever he decides on a thing that he wants, he destroys everything to get it. Yeah. And yes. Yeah. yeah. Be it like um, when he when he decides he's in love with um, the woman next door, first yeah. series, or when he decides he's in love with Dobby. Yeah. Um, and Mark is just a monster. But the difference between them is Mark knows what he means. When Mark wants something, he mm. he's very damaged and very broken. He knows, like, he know he know he has some sense of himself and why he wants it. Whereas I think, like, Jez has to be Blair, has mm. to be that portion of Labour because they know he knows vaguely what the thing is. He knows how to respond when you say something like Iraq or Blair. Ironically, mm. um, he knows how to respond. He knows the standard response that people of his particular like milieu have yeah. to that but he doesn't know why he has it he doesn't read the news no it, it's it's that kind of unthinking reflex like tony blair playing football for the cameras yeah. i'm sure he maybe likes football or, or something like that but he probably never played it that much mm. in the same way he wanted to be a musician but he didn't actually want to be a musician no. because he could have been a musician if he really wanted to he wanted to play guitar on the side while he trained to be a lawyer mm. you know what i mean that just that sentence is just makes my skin crawl. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I, you know he's doing a sensible job, but he's also got a bit of edge. Yeah, that was that was his whole his whole project there. Yeah, yeah. You know he's the cool one at the um at the lawyer's office party, but don't leave him alone with your drink. Mm. But he's also like um. He never he doesn't want to be that thing. It's really only a, a show. It's only on the mm. surface. He but has. The thing is, the reason why he is both Mark and Jez okay. is theory. because Jez is afraid of Johnson, who is the rapacious international capitalist. Yes. 
Whereas Mark is in love with him. Yeah. To his very core. Yeah. And will do anything to be near him. Mm. And that, you know, it's that thing of, there are certain, the only things that Blair ever really knew he wanted, which would be ID cards, say. Yeah. Or something like that. They're all stuff that Mark would really love because at his core, he's a fascist. Mm. But also Mark, Mark follows the trends because he knows enough to pick up something and know what he likes. Whereas Jez says something because he heard something about it and said that's a good idea, which to me is pure Blair. Mm. He heard, it's like, uh, how can we stop people uh, coming in and doing 7-7s? Seven <laughs> and it's like, well, make everybody carry ID cards and be monitored by CCTVs and then they'll just do it. And it's and like, yeah, but actually it shows that, you know, these people are British citizens, like people who did 7-7 mm. were British citizens, it wouldn't stop it. And it's like, yeah, but might as well have it anyway. Yeah, and you could see you know? one question like, are you being a fascist? Mm. Like, am I? No, I don't think I am. <laughs> I would come up with some excuse, yeah. Yeah. Dirtbags, though. Mm. Filthy, disgusting. Yeah. Horrible Blair. Um, the other, like, uh, so, like, I, yeah, you could definitely say, like, Peep Show is, I think it's definitely the later Blair yeah, years kind of apart. specialism. Because, mm. like, they are alone in that flat because of the specific conditions that, that, that like Blairism set yeah. up. Yeah. The other thing I was thinking of the other day that's really not in its in its form, but like kind of as a as a as a trend is Peter Kay. Mm. Peter Kay kind of really came to prominence like two thousand ish with uh, Phoenix Knights. He'd been on stand up thing for a while. And uh, kind of his stand-up combines that very nostalgic view of the the kind of the old working class, the kind of um, a surprisingly kind of like middle class like working classness, if you know what I mean. Yeah. They have houses like they have the, they have the the houses and the the does the thing they can go out and and they can go on holiday and mm. things like that. But combines it with that kind of yeah community kind of all your family living nearby it's like a it's that perfect like that Blairite utopia that I think he he started on the road to and it's what we end with now with um authenticity mm. authenticrats remembering things a certain way and saying that's the proper mode of living so yeah. I mean like real ale snobs yeah things like that same people don't drink coffee yeah same same people don't drink coffee that's a perfect perfect yeah. example yeah. Like um, a true working class man drinks tea yeah it's like tea or, you know, gravel. <laughs> Hot bovel. <laughs> Hot bovel licked from a tin. Yeah. Um, but his career is quite interesting because, like, Phoenix Nights, when it came out, was, like, I wouldn't say experimental, but it was certainly it's not... Different. It was. It came up with kind of League of Gentlemen in portraying the North mm. in a particular light with very particular, like, 70s aesthetics. Mm. Slightly modified for the modern era, so everything's decaying. It, mm. it kind of reached a, a high watermark in the 70s, and then when it's being portrayed in the 90s, it's decayed and it's kind of fucked up. And mm. there's a lot of weirdos and a lot of like sexual perversions in it. And, and it's really, I really like Phoenix Knights, I think it's really funny and it's, it's a really good piece of work. But like, he then kind of moves on to like celebrity culture with the um the X Factor kind of ripoff. Oh yeah. And he repeatedly does the the tours which kind of boil down to do you remember this thing? Yeah. And that's like the proper end point of the stadium comic just turning yeah. up in your place and say, remember when you were younger and it was nicer. Yeah. It's a like don't get me wrong, I think like I, I think he's quite I know he's got like a lot of criticism. But I think like some of his stand-ups are really, really funny. But they do have that kind of well, they're all the same, mournful, the like nostalgia. This like longing for a lost world, probably, probably never existed in mm. exactly the form it's presented to you. Mm. It takes all the kind of tropes and all the all the all the little things that you remember from somebody who was there, mm. and packages them up and presents them back to you so that you can, you know, remember. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's Peter Kay is definitely the biggest British member of. Yeah. Well, he really. was then. Yeah, he was then. <clears throat> but it's just disappointing in that he kind of, he, he could have, after Phoenix Lights was pretty successful, he could yeah. have done, he could have done anything with that. But he went back on the stand-up circuit and kind of ploughed the same... Furrow. Furrow. Yeah. yeah. Instead of doing like the Alan Partridge thing. Yeah, of constantly 
trying to 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 challenge it and, mm. and make it something better. It's like Blair himself, <laughs> yeah, increasingly leaning on this nostalgic nationalism, imaginary notion of a past that never really existed. Yeah, an imagined community. He starts talking about Britishness towards the end as well. Mm. Blair, it's the, what it is to be British and all that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. It's a, it's a, there's a lot of missed opportunities reflected, I think, in Peter Kay's career that, like, it's and a, he had a lot of imitators as well. John Bishop, um, Jason Manford, to a certain extent, is yeah. the same. That kind of standard panel show, stand-up person. Yeah. That model, that's a, that's a, that's one of the three models of stand-up comedy now, mm. like or at least televised stand-up comedy, yes. which is remembering things, talking about being a woman. And talking about the time he went to a station, yeah, and there was a bird, <laughs> like so, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, it's and in the same way that Blair has like give birth to like a kind of a militarized, violent membering, coupled with all the things that you kind of remember that you like. Maybe we should modernize them. Mm. Then you have the Peter K. Let's chuckle about it, and also sneer at the notion of garlic bread. Yeah, yeah, it's a kind of combination. Like yeah, there's a combination of like. Uh, a sneer, like a not with Peter Kay himself, but mm. it definitely gives birth to the the modern like coffee thing mm. or the fancy or the croissant thing, mm. which ends up getting weaponized to attack actual progressive things that mm. you could do, and just all that constant looking back, it just cuts off that that idea that you have a future, that idea mm. that there could be a future that's different from this, and like. Thank God, like I think that's one of the best things Corbyn has done is reawaken that kind of thinking among, at the very least, the left, mm. um, and apparently a lot of other people if the elections anything to go by. But there's a still a strain of people, and they tend to be the same people who look back on Blair fondly without remembering what he did, mm. that are desperate to cut off that future. They just want the end of history to come back mm. because history started moving again. Mm. and now they want to stop it mm. and have that all over again. You can psychologise it and say, oh, it's remembering when they were younger and when they were more potent, mm. but I think there's also a civil, like there's a societal, like civilizational thing there. But also, there's enough young people who are identifying with that shit mm. that they're not remembering anything. Yeah. Um, you know, we talked about it before with like the Oasis stuff. Yes, um, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's weird. It's like until... Now, like until the last election with Corbyn and showing that actually there is a different kind of future. Yeah. The only future before was a future of more forms. Yeah. More forms and less rights. Yeah. And while you're upset about that, once you finish filling in all your forms, you can watch a nice stand-up comic called say things like, remember when you could go to Butlins? Remember when you could stand outside your house all day? <laughs> remember when you could play football on the green in front of your flat? Like... Yeah. Those people remembering that thing specifically don't remember that it was Blair that kind of did them did quite a lot to stop that. Mm. Until that lovely night. Yeah. Wrap it up. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's uh, so. That's the end of our arc. Mm. We might do another arc in the future. Um, yeah. We might... um, the next episode we're going to do focus more on the. Well, we like telly. Yeah. We like telly and we like films. Yeah. And so, so we'll we're going to talk about that. Yeah. And we'll maybe do another arc after that. Yeah. Ooh, yes. yeah, we'll have a, we'll have have a discussion about that. Yeah, cool. So you can uh, subscribe to us on iTunes. Mm. You can uh, follow us at WDTATW underscore podcast. You can follow me at BM Bergamo and you can follow Hugh at Tanner Smashing. And uh, yeah, let us know what you think. If you've got any ideas for what you'd like us to talk about in the future, um, let us know. Cool. But fighting am the least about the fighting game when Mr. Hoover said to come.